This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, please see the MCLE website. I am now just going to briefly talk about um, Muslim marriage contracts. This is something that I've actually had some experience with uh, in representing some of my clients of the Muslim faith. Um, and, and so what I'm just going to do is I'm just going to talk with you about um, a little bit about, uh, about these traditional um, religious contracts. And um, just to give you a little bit of a background as to um, what goes into them, um, so you can compare and contrast with what Jennifer just told you about um, the, the work that she puts into um, drafting a prenup agreement. Um, so a, a Muslim marriage contract is something that is uh, actually customary in all marriages that are solemnized in the Islamic in the Islamic faith. However, there are a little bit of differences um, between people of the Sunni Islamic faith and those of the Shia Islamic faith. Um, there's a requirement of witnesses um, in the Sunni faith. There's at least two witnesses. However, um, in the Shia Islamic faith, um, you know, there, while there are protocols that are, uh, you know, there there are protocols that are necessary. Uh, witnesses, if the witness, if witnesses aren't available, um, then it, I mean, this, the spouse, the spouses can execute the contract without, um, w without, without the witnesses. Um, now, I mean, the the components of a lot of uh, of of these Muslim marriage contracts, they um, really uh, they talk about the responsibilities that the spouses have towards each other. There can even be some um, requirements as to physical intimacy, um, what the expectations are about physical intimacy. Um, it could also, uh, you know, whether one spouse is allowed to work. I mean, usually when I'm speaking of this, it's usually in a gender role based uh, discussion in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the female spouse, uh, whether or not she is permitted to work outside the home, uh, et cetera. Um, and also um, the, these, uh, the, the Muslim marriage contracts often also discuss what the um, recourses are in case one party, a spouse wishes to divorce, what the reasons are uh, that are required in order for one spouse to divorce the other, what reasons, if any, I should say. Um, so, um, actually, we could just go to the next slide, please, if you don't mind. <laughs> now, uh, one core component uh, in these Muslim marriage contracts is what's called a mar, um, and it's commonly called mar, but however, in my experience, uh, depending on where your client is from, and let me just backtrack it, just because uh, a Muslim marriage contract, if it's, it can be, uh, can look a certain way if the client is from Bangladesh, um, and, and, uh, and a person of Muslim faith from Bangladesh versus a person, a person of Muslim faith from Iraq or a, a person of Muslim faith from Egypt, Morocco. Um, and so as such, uh, you, you may, if you uh, uh, work with clients of the Muslim faith, you may notice some similarities, but also some differences between uh, the Muslim marriage contracts that you come across. But in Islam, um, it, the mahar, is um, is it's also like the English, the literal translation for it is dowry, um, 
and it is actually customary um, for the uh, the husband to give to the wife. Um, and, and and but these contracts they do uh, the mahar can be paid either immediately uh, or it can be deferred. Um, and it can up and um, if it, if it's deferred, then it could be five years into a marriage where a, uh, the wife can demand the immediate payment for the, for them for the mahar. Um, and it's um, and also um, as as parties are divorcing, however, the mahar is something that is uh, according to the Islamic state something that is supposed to be enforceable um, immediately as a result of as the divorce. Um, I've seen actually a, a lot of Muslim marriage contracts also speak about many other, in addition to the maharla, which is a, a monetary amount, but also it can uh, talk about gifts that um, the husband is supposed to give to the wife. I've seen mahars talk about like dresses, furniture, um, dishes, silverware, all of those sort of things as a part of the gifts that the wife is supposed to receive uh, as a result of, of, of the marriage. Um, now, uh, it, it, in, again, in, in the Islamic faith, um, if, um, if, 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 the, um, if the wife initiates the divorce proceedings herself, then that kind of acts as if um, a way of her kind of, um, uh, she then kind of forfeits her right to the mahar um, if it is divorce proceedings without cause. Um, and the cause that a wife, I guess the only reasons that a wife can get divorced, according to Islam, is if there is something that she's been harmed by, um, that it's some conduct that the husband has caused that, that harms her. That um, is perhaps the main reasons that she can divorce. Now, with respect to the mar, there's a full gamut. There's, like I was just saying, that, you, I mean, there's so many um, uh, gifts and furniture and jewelry and, and um uh, but also, there, uh, there's no so there's no minimum or maximum amount of what the mahar is, or what the mahar is supposed to contain. Um, these marriage contracts are usually negotiated by families, by the members of the family. Uh, you know, uh, maybe maybe someone in the family is a lawyer, but usually not. This is just considered. This is just um, it's usually it's it's usually just male family members who engage in this negotiation, and it could be. It, it, and it could be multiple people, multiple male family members engaging in the negotiation. Um, and so, um, and, and then, it, uh, if, um, you know, and, and so as a result of that, um, sometimes there can be a little bit of a mix up in terms of uh, what the actual intent was behind the, the mar and, and, and things like that, just because uh, you've got multiple chefs cooking the, cooking the stew. Um, but one thing that's also important to know is that um, you know a lot of the stipulations regarding property actually they tend to be absent in a lot of these Muslim marriage contracts um, because um, actually you know marital or community property doesn't really exist under a tra traditional Islamic context. It's it's just a single person who holds each property title. Of course, um, it's been my experience that um, the majority of property is held in the title of uh, the men in the family, uh, very rarely, very, very rarely um, have I had a client of the Muslim faith who holds exclusive title to property. Um, but it, it, so it, it has happened, but it's quite rare. Um, now, um, uh, now, 
in Islamic faith, many, many years ago, it was, it was um, permitted, or I should say it still is permitted, for um, um, Muslim men to marry multiple wives and to take multiple wives. Um, and so, um, the, the, but however, you could take as many wives as you were able to financially support. Um, and, and you had to provide, and as long, and you also had to basically maintain the level of living that they'd been accustomed to. Um, so, um, therefore, like, you know, men, it, it's very clear, men are supposed to financially provide for their wives, um, and, um, you know, as long as they're able, but if a wife uh, chooses to work during the marriage, then, I mean, all the money actually is hers, and it's a part of her separate marital property, and um, technically, she is not obligated under Islamic law to financially support the family. Uh, so how it works under Islamic law, it, well, my experience in representing um, clients of the Muslim faith, it's, it's quite different. <laughs> um, and so while technically under the Islamic law, they're, they're not, it's not required that they that they provide the finan that they financially support their family. Usually, usually it's been different where um, my clients have been required to give the money to their husband, no matter what they earn. That's just, that's, um, so that, that's just been the practice. One of the things that I think is so interesting about um, uh, Muslim marriage contracts is that I have seen uh, one of, uh, you know, uh, many clients, well, uh, the husband who uh, wishes to enforce the marriage, the Muslim marriage contract as a prenuptial agreement, because the mahar uh, does contain a provision about what the wife is supposed to receive upon a, the uh, upon a divorce, and usually it's 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 a nominal amount. Um, a lot of you know, I mean, when I've I've got you know clients from poorer countries, uh, well, I shouldn't say and say it like that, but I mean, I've had clients from Bangladesh and uh, who, who um, they've negotiated a, a very small amount because that's just what the families had. And when you look at what the amount was of the uh, of the mahar, it translates to maybe about $200 um, in U.S. currency. And so there is an interest and uh, on the other side to just like, well, I don't need to pay alimony. I just, this is, the, this is what I agreed to. This is what we negotiated prior to our marriage. When we get divorced, I, and I have the right to divorce her. This is the amount of money that I'm obligated to pay, and that's it. Um, and so, uh, and and so, I mean, uh, the our, our um, you know, the, the probate and family court laws, and well, I'm sorry, the family laws here in Massachusetts are quite different. And the way that the probate and family court would look at a Muslim marriage contract is is different. But I bring this up to you um, just so you have a cultural background of how these, uh, of what goes into the execution of Muslim marriage contracts. And this is also a way for, for you to perhaps compare and contrast what Jennifer just told you about the level of, the, the, the amount of work that she puts in to drafting a prenuptial agreement. The, I mean, the, the mere fact that um, she says the prenup agreement is something that's valid for a full year prior to the parties getting married. In contrast, a Muslim marriage contract is actually signed immediately um and then the parties are married uh and and if you don't sign the contract you're not married so um and actually uh the the um the actual the the the, uh, the wedding ceremony um in, in in islamic faith is uh often called a nikah which means the signing of the contract 
So um, the the fact that the marriage contract is signed within minutes of the parties, quote unquote, being pronounced married, and that if you don't, there uh, you, uh, you you will not be married to that person, I think is a really important um, thing to know about uh, Muslim marriage contracts. And so um, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating cultural issue. Um, but and what I can what I what I uh, what I believe is that there are currently no reported cases in Massachusetts where the probate and family court has had an evidentiary hearing or a trial on the enforceability of the Muslim marriage contract as a duly executed prenuptial agreement in Massachusetts. Um, there, ha there, there was a, a very interesting case that came down, I want to say in 2017 or 2018, uh, where um, a probate and family court judge did uh, uh, uphold a foreign judgment concerning the uh, a mahar um there this was a, a this was a, a fascinating case where the parties um uh they were from iran and um and they uh and although i won't go into all the factual details of the case um but my understanding of that case is that the litigation of the uh of the mahar itself took place in iran and so um, the, the a probate and family court judge was uh, did um, look at uh, you know did give um, uh, did did enforce um, the, the the judgment from Iran. I believe the way that it actually ended up playing out is that um, because the husband had appealed in Iran on a couple of uh, the the case wasn't fully settled as a matter of law. So while the court did enforce strove to enforce a foreign judgment uh the fact that it was n that all appeals had not been exhausted was uh, a reason that the um the the appeals court said well we're not a you know that that's that's an error so um this issue of uh, whether or not a um, muslim marriage contract would be akin to a massachusetts prenuptial agreement is still an open question um and i would um my instinct is based on the way that these contracts are executed, the proximity to the to the marriage, the uh, the fact that there aren't really any requirements of financial disclosure. Um, you know, it's very rare for anyone to be uh, you know an attorney of law drafting you know who, who can advise um, a client about what their rights are um, as a, as a result of divorce prior to even signing the contract. My sense is is that um, it would be hard to actually have a Muslim marriage contract executed in this manner be enforceable as an antinuptial agreement. But I'd love to hear what you have to think, Jennifer. This is a fascinating area of <laughs> I like I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start. But I I I agree with your assessment that the way that these are executed traditionally mm -hmm. Yeah, mean that it's not going to be enforceable here in the states, or at least in Massachusetts, because of the lack of disclosure, the lack of voluntariness. There's certainly going to be an argument of duress. I mean, it's either you marry this, you you sign this, and you get married, or you don't sign, you don't get married. Um, it certainly wouldn't. It doesn't comport with our sense of voluntariness and free of coercion and duress, for sure. Right. Uh, I do think it's. Fascinating, though, because I'm sure there are other cultures, and I don't know if you're aware of any, Manisha, where they have something similar mm -hmm. uh, to this. Um, and so it may come across your desk, maybe not as a Muslim marriage contract, but a different culture's contract, right. 
but have the same sort of informalities to it. Right. I, I also, you know, it's a really fascinating um, examination of the interplay between cultural norms and expectations between, in this case, Muslim faith, um, you know, clients and you know, the U.S. Um, expectations and standards at disclosure. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's it's absolutely fascinating. And how you know when it, how do you find out if your client has one of these? I mean, because usually I say to them, you know, if it's a, if it's a divorce, they'll say, is there any prenups or there any postnups? Is that sort of just a general question that you ask when you have a client that you think may be of you know Muslim descent or faith? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, usually, um, so if the client uh, immigrated from a foreign country, um, sometimes this uh, Muslim marriage contract, after it's been signed, that is the marriage certificate that that country off, will, will say, this is the official marriage certificate, and it it just happens to have all of these, you know, provisions about a dowry and things like that. Uh, sometimes, um, it, it, you know, again, depending on the country, maybe um, the, your client needs to also go through a civil ceremony uh, in the home country before they can lawfully immigrate to the United States. And so you might have a different document um, that, uh, that's, you know, um, that, that's from the civil court or from the, from the civil um, authorities um, in, in their home country. Sometimes, um, you know, what I, um, here in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, um, you do have people who uh, will execute a marriage contract as per the tradition and faith and the beauty of their culture, but then they will also um, go to the courthouse and, or I would, I shouldn't, I'm sorry, I should say like the, the city hall um, and, um, and, and have a civil um, marriage certificate issued because Sometimes the people, the the witnesses or the um, imam, who who is a um, the, the the Muslim, who is the person of the Muslim faith who solemnizes the marriage, that imam might not also be uh, legally authorized to solemnize Massachusetts marriages in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So it could be, you know, so um, sometimes you could have um, something that you're that we're more familiar with as a result of um, of, the, of the cultural interplay. Um, that, the, that um, these uh, cases present. Well, it'd be interesting too, because you know, we've abolished dowry in Massachusetts, right? So it's sort of this concept too of would this even, would this even be entertained as a prenuptial agreement? Um, mm-hmm. Or would it just sort of be this issue of, are we giving full faith and credit to this gift, which right. is not a legal contract, even, you know, even though it may be in, um, Islamic cultures, it's not, it would not rise to the level of a contract here in the United States, and so we're not even going to look at it. I mean, it's just, we'll just treat it like a dowry and say it was a gift in contemplation of marriage. Uh, right, right. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's really, really, really interesting, um, and uh, um, I mean, I, uh, I, I mean, I just, um, and, and, and also, I mean, interestingly enough, um, I, I, you know, it's a little bit of a segue into uh, <laughs> some other things we'll be talking about later, but, um, you know, within the Muslim faith as well, um, uh, you know, it's quite possible for a husband to say one word three times in order to divorce the wife. And that's considered to be a religious divorce. So, um, you know, and, and so now we all, I mean, that would not translate to, you know, the jurisprudence of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but in, uh, you know, in um, 
in uh, I have a, I've had a lot of Muslim clients come to me and say, Manisha, um, my my husband already said to me talak talak talak, and they, and so that according to my faith, I'm already divorced. And so um, uh, the, the mere fact that we actually have to you know we have to file the complaint and we have to go through the whole civil paperwork here in Massachusetts um, is something that there it, it takes them back a bit. <laughs> But, um, but fortunately, they're able to understand pretty quickly that um, the, uh, the, the way that, um, you know, our system of law is different than system of law at home. And so, um, you know, if they receive their religious divorce and that for their own faith and their, is, is satisfying to them, that's also good. Um, however, um, in order to uh, then take care of the, the collateral needs as a result of the marriage ending, I do need to file a complaint for divorce on their behalf. So I had something not relating to a religious contract, but sort of this concept of a foreign divorce um, and foreign proceedings and how it may have an interplay here in Massachusetts that had uh, a potential client who called me wife had filed for divorce in Massachusetts, but um, they were from Israel and he was living in Israel. Um, Wife was here with the child. And so he sort of, you know, thinking he was going to have to battle this on both fronts. They had property in Israel um, as well. You know, so he's kind of like, okay, so we're up and running in Israel. You know, we're dealing with the property division piece. And my wife filed a custody case here in Massachusetts. Now, you know, sort of going outside the scope of our um, discussion today, but under the UCCJEA, we would have jurisdiction here in Massachusetts. The child had been here lawfully for six months or more. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would technically have jurisdiction. And I pulled up the case online while I was on phone with him. I went into the attorney portal and I said, wait a minute, your wife has dismissed the, the Massachusetts action. And he said, what? I said, she's dismissed it. I said, she filed um, a voluntary dismissal and she alleges that the Israeli courts have already decided custody and awarded her custody. And he didn't know. He was like, that's not what my lawyer told me. <laughs> so I was, sort of, I was like, well, I'll send you this paper. You know, I'll print it out. I'll scan it over to you. But you need to have a conversation with your attorney in Israel about what actually happened there. Um, and also whether or not Israel has jurisdiction over your custody dispute with your child because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, under our laws, Israel wouldn't have jurisdiction. Um, but, you know, you need to sort of figure that out. So it's always interesting when you deal with either a different country or a different state um, and just really being aware, at least being able to flag these as potential issues. I mean, you may not have every answer. You never, nobody ever does, but mm-hmm. to at least be able to identify like, okay, there's this marriage, you know, this religious marriage contract out there. What do I need to be thinking about with it? How do I need to, what conversation do I need to be having with the client? Um, and how might the other side try to use this or not want to use it, right? Depending on which side you're on. Exactly, really exactly. And, and of course, like, I mean, but, you know, to your point also, um, uh, you know, uh, well, your point in, in, a, in, in one of the previous slides, but like a prenuptial agreement, like if both parties are, you know, would like to, you know, would like to say, well, you know, this is what we're doing. This is, we executed a religious marriage contract and, um, you know, we, you know, we would like, you know, we stand by it. 
Um, and now we're going to execute, we would like to now, um, you know, do, uh, execute something that's, um, that's, uh, that would pass legal muster in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, that's something that you could probably incorporate into a prenup agreement as well, as I would imagine. I mean, you know, but it, again, it just requires, like you said, um, both parties to, um, you know, to, to be on board with the whole, with the whole concept, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is something that you could integrate into a prenuptial agreement. You just need to make sure it's meeting the standards of the courts here as well. Right. Um, yeah. So try to find that balance between what their culture or religion may dictate or request of them, require of them, versus what the legal standard here would be in terms of being fair and reasonable. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Thank you.